you even need to turn there. Exodus 20, verse 13, it's, it's four words. You shall not murder. Uh, or in the old King James, you shall not kill. Uh, and with those words uh, of the Lord, let us pray together for his blessing on the preaching. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us in the ways of life, uh, in the ways of salvation by faith, and, and then in the way that we're meant to live by faith, a life full of good deeds and, and love and so forth. Uh, Father, we ask you that as we look at this commandment, uh, on the one hand, we could say, what is there to say about it? Though, uh, God, I can say to you after spending a week with it, I, I, I had so many things to say, I, I could barely contain it in one sermon. So, Lord, so it is with your word always. And we ask you that as we plumb the depths here or even just begin to, we pray that you would make us very thoughtful about what obedience to your will looks like. So unlike the Pharisees who were so shallow in their approach, give us a thoughtful, that is to say, a spiritual view of your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall not murder, you shall not kill, depending on your translation. This is a command command which has to do with the category of life. The shorter catechism says about this commandment, you're familiar by now with the structure, what is commanded, what is forbidden. What is required in the Sixth Commandment? Answer, the Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Question 69, what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. That word tendeth, I think, is a good one. I'm going to come back to it. And so clearly with this commandment, life is the crucial category. To murder or to kill unlawfully is to take away someone's life unjustly. Though I don't say the life of another, as the confession or the catechism says, I would be in agreement. It is, of course, possible to murder oneself. And so it's simply to take a life unjustly. It might be your own, in which case you would still be guilty. The sin or the the crime of suicide is still the crime of of murder it is to break the sixth commandment and so what is being for, uh, forbidden here is the taking of life and on the other hand it encourages all that all that tends to life and good living and the welfare of ourselves and others well before we look at specifically and in some detail what is commanded and what is forbidden with the emphasis on what is forbidden because this commandment does come to us as a prohibition I thought it might be helpful, and I'm just following John Murray in his book, Principles of Conduct, to outline the history of the concept a little bit. Uh, You uh, remember, uh, as I've been highlighting up to this point, that everything that is said at Sinai brings us back to the garden. It's an important principle. I often say this in connection with the divorce question. Jesus says, if you had read Sinai in light of the garden, you never would have asked your silly questions about divorce. Everything at Sinai brings us back to the garden. This commandment, no less than the others. And so thinking in terms of the history of the concept that's being presented here and which God is seeking to preserve, namely the concept of life. What do we notice in in the creation account, specifically with reference to man? Well, we notice and I'll just summarize without reading any of the verses there that God created man by breathing life into man. And the precise import of this idea is twofold. 
very explicitly in the account, in the account Genesis 1 and 2. One is that man uniquely, unlike the animals, let me underline that, man alone in creation is animated by the life of God himself. Man's creation, we notice, is distinct from the animals. And this is because, secondly, man uniquely, again, unlike the animals, bears the image of God. In the image of God, male and female, God created them. Genesis 1.27. We don't read that about the animals. And so the importance of man's life is highlighted in these two ways in the creation account. And the point is, life, man's life, is something that God gives Man is, uh, in a unique way, animated with the life of God. And man's life is especially important when it's viewed like this. His life belongs in a special category, even above that of the animals. Now, when you look at life like that, man's life, there is also, going into Genesis 2, where the Lord begins to deal with Adam in terms of a covenantal arrangement, special force to the words uttered in connection with the prohibition, chapter 2, verse 17, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there God presents death as the wages of sin. On the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Death as the wages or the condition of sin. Not as the, the natural outcome of life, but as the wages of sin. Death there is presented, as John Murray says in Principles of Conduct, not as the debt of nature, but as the penalty for sin. In other words, if you were to ask the question, would man have died if he hadn't sinned? The obvious answer is no. In fact, he would have passed into a higher form of life, that of heavenly life. And he would have, as we saw in the fourth commandment, entered into his Sabbath rest along with God. But the point is, death is unnatural. It isn't natural to die. Sometimes people say foolish things like that, but we shouldn't say that as Christians. We know that it's part of life now. But there's something very unnatural about life from the standpoint of the creation. Death is not part of the created order. It's something that comes afterwards. It's something that comes in as a result of sin. Man wasn't made to die. He was made for eternity. And it's in light of this that the gospel appeals to us. There's something beyond this life that we all hope to enjoy. But death, in contrast, is an intrusion into the created world, again, brought about by man's sin. Now, the same issue, the contrast between death and life, is immediately highlighted. I've been talking about chapters 1 and 2, but this issue is immediately highlighted in the first recorded sin following the fall, which occurred in chapter 4, which is the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Genesis chapter 4. Again, the first recorded sin following the fall. But the way that uh, the Bible narrates uh, that account once again underscores the value of human life. And it does so in two main ways. One is the fact that Abel being slain, we read that his blood cries out to God. The, shed, the shedding of blood needlessly was a great offense to God. It cried out in a way that he heard it, that he took account. For Cain to slay his brother directly undid God's own work in creating man. And so the blood of man cried out for vengeance to God. But there's actually another detail that underscores the point to an even greater degree. And that is the fact if you remember from Genesis chapter 4, that God promises to protect Cain. 
It isn't just that the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance, but it's that God promises to protect Cain. Cain is afraid that he's, as he's an exile and a wanderer that he'll be slain. But God promises to protect him. And what does that tell us? It tells us that even the life of a murderer is precious and that it has value. I don't think there's anything that could underscore the value of human life in the context of the taking of it than what he promises to Cain. Genesis chapter 4. And so, as I say, that account is told in such a way to underscore the value of life. Following this, we have an important pronouncement by God immediately after the flood subsided, where he says this. Genesis chapter 9. Verses 1 through 7. And notice several things which the Lord is saying here, which I'll highlight after reading it. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all uh, on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds blood by uh, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. And, uh, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah. And his son saying to him, as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Well, God is saying several things here. For one thing, he's clearly saying that the life of man is of greater value than that of the beasts. For a beast to die is all right, God is saying. There's no transgression in that. Man is permitted to kill and to eat the animals. But the opposite is not true. God will require the life of a beast that kills a man. And the same is true of man himself. Man is not free, God says, to kill another man. And if he does, God will require his own life. And so, again, following the fall, and just think of it, uh, excuse me, the flood, just as God has taken the life of the whole world except for this one family, he once again underscores the immense value that he attaches to the life of man. When nothing less than the life of the murderer will satisfy divine justice, God is saying. There is no other penalty that could possibly be just, at least from the divine, the, the divine standpoint. To take a life is to forfeit one's own life. But the last thing we see, again, is the emphasis on the image of God in man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man. His blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. Here again, God is stressing what it is about man that is unique and why it is wrong to take the life of another man. It is because God is saying that the image of himself resides in man, which makes this particular sin, sin an affront on God himself. It denies and seeks to undo the image of God in our neighbor or in our brother. Let me say here what this image involves. When we say that man is made in the image of God and that man possesses now as a result of this, the image of God. What we mean is that man 
is like God. We mean that man resembles his creator in a way that the beasts of the field do not, or the birds of the air, or the fish of the sea. He resembles his creator. And as a result of this, if you think of Adam dwelling in the garden, we, un- we understand and we find Adam there as one who is uniquely fit to commune with God. In, in resembling his creator, he is created as one who is equipped to dwell and to commune with God. Or to put it another way, God made man to commune with himself. And of of course, this is precisely the relationship that sin has disrupted so terribly. The whole result of sin is that man, as we know, is alienated from God. That is our fundamental dilemma. The whole relationship between ourselves and God has been disrupted on account of sin. But still, remarkably, we discover, even though man is now fallen He retains the image of God. This is something that God affirms in Genesis chapter 9. Something that we also know from the testimony of our own consciences. Because uh, each of us, as one created in the image of God, retains a longing for our creator. A longing to commune with him and to have this relationship restored, which is only restored, as you know, in the gospel. But that is the longing of every human heart. Man is made For fellowship with God. And that is fundamentally, I think, what is meant by the idea of the image of God. It's one of fellowship and communion. But you see, even after the flood, as sinful as man had become, even Noah and his family and his descendants, all of them together still retain the image of God. Man is still meant by virtue of the fact that he is man and not one of the beasts to be like God in this world. And so God is saying, you may not take the life of another man simply because he's made in my image. Well, that's just something of the history leading up to Sinai. You notice in the first nine chapters of Genesis, the idea of life is very, very strongly uh, underscored. Leading up to uh, the simple prohibition in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder or you shall not kill. The question which we obviously have is, I think we all understand the, the plain uh, meaning of the words themselves, but the question which we have as a second point is, what is the extent of what God is asking here? The extent of the prohibition. What does a real obedience to this commandment look like? What exactly is God forbidding here? And what is he telling us positively to do? Well, let me begin with what he's telling us to do, what he requires. We've seen an answer in the Shorter Catechism. Let me give my own. He's telling us to value life, to understand the the value that he assigns to life. Man is made in the image of God. To understand why it is precisely that human life is valuable in a way that, again, the life of animals is not. And that is a value we must assign to all human life. Human life as it is found, for instance, in the womb. The Sixth Commandment rules out abortion. Sixth Commandment forbids euthanasia. We ought to value life at a very advanced age, even when human life, it seems, has no value, at least to society. It is value in the eyes of God. And yes, the early chapters of Genesis tells us that we ought to value even the lives of those whom we consider to be our enemies, men like Cain, notorious sinners who commit terrible crimes. Even their lives have value because they, too, 
though in a terribly fallen way, retain the image of God. And until we uh, see that even their lives have tremendous value assigned to them by God himself, we have missed the true impulse and the spirit of the sixth commandment. You remember what Jesus says, we ought to love not just our brother, but our, but our enemy. And what this means, again, we're looking at the positive uh, requirements of the command, is not just that we have certain feelings about this. I'm talking about a value that we assign, but that's not just a thought or a feeling, but that as a result of the value that we take certain actions, as John tells us in what I read, 1 John 3, to love indeed and not just words. To do good deeds for your brother and even for your enemy. And so John says, you see your brother in need. Well, what are you going to do about it? Are you really interested in his well-being? Are you interested in his life? Look at your actions. And before that, look at your heart. Ask yourself, do I love him? Love does no wrong to my neighbor. Therefore, it fulfills the law. Romans 13.10. Again, love is more than a feeling. It leads to positive action. It does no wrong. And positively, it seeks to do good. It is concerned with, again, the life of another. As this commandment, along with all the others, lead us outside of ourselves to another. But let us look at the other side. And this is where the issue gets more difficult. And that is the prohibition. What is it exactly that God is forbidding if we are to agree altogether? I don't think I need to get into this. That God is telling us not to murder our brother. But if we were to look at the command in a more spiritual fashion, uh, we suddenly encounter various difficulties in understanding what exactly God is forbidding. Well, let me speak uh, just very briefly in a general way, taking the positive and turning it around. God is telling us not to take away the life of another, nor to do anything which tends towards death. To live a life which is full of life and not full of death. But but as I say, we have to explore what this actually means. We have to probe the issue a bit and explore some of the difficulties. And this is something uh, which is easy to misunderstand. But not only that, it is a place where uh, disagreement uh, abounds among Christians. This is an area where it's either easy uh, to go too far or too short. The extent of what he is forbidding, uh, exploring the misunderstandings, number one, One obvious misunderstanding, which is still common today, is for Christians to say that God is forbidding capital punishment. That's obviously not true. If you listen to what God said in Genesis chapter 9 or Genesis uh, chapter 4, but especially chapter 9. If you take those two chapters together, you understand that God is not forbidding capital punishment, but he is forbidding A spirit of revenge, a desire to take the life of another in cold blood, taking justice into my own hands. It is along these lines that the Lord says in Romans chapter 12. Beginning in verse 18, uh, verse 17, I think better. Repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably Peaceably with all men, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. 
It's the same thing in all three passages, Genesis 4, 9 and Romans 12. And what God is saying in those passages, all of them, is that even the murderer, a man like Cain, is protected from that sort of thing. None of us is free to take the life of another in cold blood out of a spirit of revenge, even the murderer. And yet you notice in uh, in Genesis nine, especially that God does require the life of the one who does this. The question which we have is, how does God expect us to do this in light of the prohibition we've just been considering Uh, Our taking justice into our own hands? And the obvious answer, if you take Romans 12, what he says at the end and then read it into chapter 13 is the state by the state. Man as a private entity is not to take vengeance into his own hands. Chapter 12, it belongs to the Lord. But how is it that the Lord executes his vengeance upon the wrongdoer? And Paul's answer in chapter 13 of the book of Romans is by the state, by the state, which he says in verse four, he instituted to bear the sword, which is a picture, obviously, of putting someone to death. You don't bear a sword unless you mean to kill someone. And so Paul says that the state doesn't bear the sword in vain, again, verse 4, or for no reason. No, for a very specific reason, the state bears the sword as an institute and ordinance of God. And that is to execute vengeance on the wrongdoer. To punish him. And thus we see that some killing is justified. For the state to wield the sword against the murderer is not for the state to commit murder. It is rather for the state to punish the murderer and to tell its citizens that the crime of murder will be punished in the most severe way possible. In other words, nothing so so upholds the sanctity of human life as capital punishment, at least from the biblical viewpoint. And this is the idea that you find throughout Scripture in these passages we've considered Not, again, as something which transgresses the Sixth Commandment, but as something that upholds it. But going back to this argument, as we find in Genesis 9 and Romans 12, or in the Sixth Commandment itself, what God is forbidding is not the state wielding the sword against the murderer, but that I, as an individual, should take the life of another man in cold blood. That I should take his life into my hands. That I should be animated by a desire of malice and hatred and revenge and to take his life. God is saying in the sixth commandment that you have no right to do that. But that you ought to be at peace. You ought to seek even to do good to those who seek your harm. A second uh, question which we have is what about self-defense? Suppose a man is in the act of murdering me and my family. In light of the sixth commandment, do I have any right to kill him to prevent him from doing so? And the obvious answer is yes, I do. To kill someone in a a situation of self-defense is not to break the sixth commandment. For the obvious reason that in doing so, you are not so much seeking to take his life as you are seeking to protect your own life and the lives of the innocent, the lives of others. You are not animated to kill him, but to preserve and to save the lives of others. And that's why it's not a violation of the sixth commandment. Well, you see, in all of this, we have to be very careful as we seek to parse and to understand what is meant by this commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not kill. 
We have to be careful to avoid the extreme which says, if you kill anyone for any reason, in any context, you are automatically guilty of breaking this commandment. That is to miss God's real reason for giving it. Which was not to say that all killing is always wrong, but rather to to define the cases in which it is. Perhaps that isn't clear in the single verse, you shall not murder. But it certainly becomes clear when you take it together with these other passages, beginning, as we saw, with Genesis. But let us go further with this idea, a third misunderstanding, and let us look at another extreme, the most common one by far. And that is to think that so long as I haven't murdered my brother, then I'm safe. That is, so long as I haven't shed blood with my own hands, then I am uh, innocent with regard to the sixth commandment. This was, in essence, the position of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. It was what uh, he deals with in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. The first example he gives when he points to the shallow righteousness of the Pharisees that they taught was found in God's law, in which Jesus tells us we must surpass if we hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Now they said, if you commit this crime, we read this earlier, If you commit the crime of murder as an explicit act, you will be guilty and punished. You'll be liable to judgment. But that's as far as they went. And what I'm suggesting is that it's possible that we would do the same thing. That we would become little Pharisees in our own way and think, well, I haven't killed anyone, so I'm innocent with regard to the Sixth Commandment. Well, not so fast. Because Jesus in that passage locates the real impulse of murder and thus the real essence of the transgression with respect to the sixth commandment, not in the action or the act of murder, but even before that in the heart. And so he says, if you even harbor feelings of resentment toward your brother, then you're guilty of breaking this command. Or perhaps it's just a careless word spoken in anger. Nothing less than the fires of hell. That's what you deserve. So he tells us that the law is so spiritual and so demanding that it, it, it examines my every thought and my every feeling and action and anything less than a total conformity to this law results in condemnation. What this tells us is that the sixth commandment is far more demanding and commanding than we ever imagined was possible. It's saying far or is asking far more of us than simply don't shed the blood of another. And if we ever hope to keep it, we better begin with our own thoughts and words. That's what Jesus is telling us. Don't just think that because you haven't actually taken the life of another in cold blood that you're innocent. No, that is far too shallow a view of this command. It is to be, as I say, a little Pharisee yourself. John says, in the passage we read earlier, 1 John 3:15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's a very searching statement. It's a humbling one. It's almost frightening. But you notice it's the same exact thing that Jesus is saying. Anything less than love, love understood as seeking and actually making provision for my brother's welfare, is to break this command. Anything less than this is actually to to place us in the category of a murderer. It is to place us in the category of Cain, which he says a little earlier on. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, verse 12. We don't want to be numbered among Cain, do we? 
There's another misunderstanding, and this one I'm less prepared uh, to answer. I just want to explore it together. And that is the way we can sometimes go too far with all of this. I was just looking at the third way, which with, with how we sometimes go too short or we stop too short. But sometimes I think we go too far. The way sometimes we fail to grasp the complexities of life and then the element of risk, which is inherent in all living and all life. There's a kind of interpretation of the sixth commandment which denies this. I almost wonder that about Calvin, in fact, when I read him which looks too flatly at life and which says, if you do anything that places your brother's life in jeopardy, then you have broken the sixth commandment automatically. But just as soon as you put it that way, you realize that this is obviously impossible since there's no way to live without embracing a certain element of risk, both with regard to my own life and the life of others. Suppose, for instance, that I get in the car and I drive somewhere. Well, I realized uh, I realized instantly that there is the possibility that I may kill someone as a result of this. Well, should I, therefore, in light of this understanding of the sixth commandment, eliminate even the risk of this and not drive, staying at home and doing nothing? And then there's the whole issue of the pandemic. Let us just be honest. The question that Christians have been asking throughout is what about the sixth commandment? The way in which the sixth commandment forces us to take into account the life of another. And to eliminate the kinds of unnecessary risks that might put his life in jeopardy. What sort of measures ought we to take? What sort of precautions ought we to take to preserve life? Well, as I say, that's a question that we've been confronted with constantly. There's no way. I know you haven't been spending uh, your week with the Sixth Commandment, but I have. And there's no way to read this commandment and not have this thought come into your mind. Well, in the early days, if you go back to March of last year, the thought was you mustn't do anything. Those were the days of lockdown and stay-at-home orders. You must stay at home and do nothing. That's the way to preserve life. And then there were obvious adjustments to this as we move forward. And constantly, from the Christian perspective, we were all evaluating what was reasonable to ask of people. And, of course, we Christians, as I say, were doing so in light of the Sixth Commandment. We were asking ourselves, what does it mean to keep the Sixth Commandment in the midst of a pandemic? Now, I already said I don't have good answers. It's just a question we've all been exploring together for over a year. And what I've noticed and what we've all experienced, let us be honest, is that there's been a kind of give and take in the church, not just here, but throughout the whole church. There are those who say you've gone too far. You've asked too much. And there's other who said you haven't gone far enough to protect life. And it's all along been an argument and a disagreement or let's just say a give and take to put it charitably Concerning the sixth commandment. And I've never been able to see the best way to deal with this. To be honest. Ethical questions are always like this. I've often said I don't like ethical questions. Especially uh, when they're forced upon you by necessity. But let me say this. Just to add something to the discussion. That God did not. In giving this commandment. Want us to think that life was the only thing that matters. That life was an end unto itself. And that staying alive was uh, the real thing uh, he wanted us to value. And so long as we stayed alive and made sure our brothers stayed alive, that we kept the sixth commandment, or to put it another way, a little more starkly, that death was always an unacceptable outcome and that it must always be avoided by whatever means possible. Is that what God is requiring or prohibiting in the sixth commandment? 
Something I think we have to realize as we seek to resolve these difficulties. And that is the very thing that gives life such great value. Remember, that's what stands behind the commandment. It's the value of human life. The thing that gives life such value is the Imago Dei, the image of God and man. And what is the Imago Dei? It is the capacity which man has to experience communion with God. And that straight away tells me that some things are more important than life. Or at any rate, there are some things without which there's no reason to be alive. And without which the value of life or the value which we assign to life simply vanishes. Of course, the greatest thing we could ever do is worship God. That's the reason he made us. It's the reason he gave us life. That's what it means once more to bear his image. It's to seek to live for him, to glorify and enjoy him all of our days and forever. Or look at it like this. If you think in terms of the totality of the Ten Commandments, this is the danger when we isolate them one by one. If you go back to the preface, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he tells them what his will was for them. How does he begin the Ten Commandments? Well, he begins the Ten Commandments by stating who he is. And then he tells us what our life is to look like in communion and in relationship to him. He is the Lord our God. What he's asking of us and what he's telling us his will is with respect to himself is that in all of these commandments, he wants us to think for him. Above all, he wants us to live for him in his glory. That's why he begins as he does in the preface. And then in the first four commandments, he outlines uh, a relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain and you shall remember the Sabbath. The day of the Sabbath day to the Lord. It's a Sabbath to the Lord, he says. He wants us to think quite clearly of our uh, of our obedience in terms of our relationship to him. And never does he lose sight of this. Even when he comes to our brother in commandments five through ten or my neighbor, he hasn't lost sight of the preface, nor uh, nor have we. It is still the Lord expressing his will for his people. And he's asking us to evaluate our own relationship to him in terms of this law, which includes the sixth commandment. And so we should value life. That's what God's saying. That's his will for his people. But never in such a way that he ceases to be the really important thing or the ultimate end in view. Again, in all that I do, even as I seek to value the life of my brother and my neighbor and my enemy. I'm seeking most of all to glorify and, and to enjoy him forever. For first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if I'm not doing that, if that's not the real impulse that's driving me, then perhaps I'm not keeping this commandment as well as I thought. Another thing this tells us, seeing uh, the more global view of the Ten Commandments, remembering the Lord in all of this, is that he, as the Lord, determines exactly how long each of us will live. And realizing this doesn't make me reckless. It just takes into account his providence. And so it takes some of the pressure off, I would say. It gives me freedom to live my life unafraid that somehow, unwittingly, I may harm the life of another. It frees me up. And so... All that I'm saying here, I haven't resolved any of the difficulties. I'm just trying to contribute something to the discussion. 
And what I'm saying is that we have to seek to maintain balance. None of the commands stand on their own or hang in isolation. They're all part of a a larger picture of what it is to live for and to love the God who made us and who redeemed us. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I want you to live for me. And I want you to glorify me in all these ten ways. Well, I have to say at this point, as I close, just looking at this commandment, is there anything more demanding or more difficult than trying to live like this? Just as soon as you begin to do so and, and you admit that this is your commitment, you are immediately confronted, unlike the Pharisees, with a thousand questions. What does it really mean to keep the sixth commandment? But it was at this point that the Pharisees sought to resolve the difficulty by eliminating the questions and by flattening the law, by making it all seem so easy. Don't kill anyone and you've kept the commandment. You're innocent. You're free. There's nothing to it. Well, I think we all know as Christians and as disciples of our Lord that that simply won't do. We as Christian people, again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, are meant to embody the righteousness of the kingdom of God precisely That which was not found in the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then having said that, he tells us what that righteousness looks like. The true righteousness of the true sons of God. And in doing so, he comes to this commandment first. The sixth commandment. And so let us see this. We read this earlier in Matthew 5 verses 21 through 26. Let us see this commandment, the sixth commandment, as a kind of litmus test of our obedience Whether our obedience and our righteousness really does surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees or whether we're just Pharisees ourselves. I won't say it's easy. There's nothing so difficult, difficult, I mean, and demanding as this law. And Jesus, I just mean the Ten Commandments. What we discover is Jesus, when he came, didn't make it any easier. He only made it seem more demanding still. He presented the fullness of the law to his people and he said, this is how I want you to keep it. And then you go into the epistles and you discover the apostles did the same thing. If you do anything less than love your brother and live a life of love to him, you're transgressing this commandment. And so they keep setting the sixth commandment before us as a test of love and as a test of discipleship. Do you really know what it is to love your brother and to walk in fellowship with our elder brother, Jesus Christ? But then I think the most amazing thing is that is that the sixth commandment in its own way, as the apostles and Jesus are doing this in the New Testament. Pointing to this way of life and this commandment reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just tell us the way to live, but it tells us why we're able to live like this. And this is what John says. These are my closing words. By this, we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. That is Jesus. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world goods, this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Because, as he says, that is exactly how Jesus Christ loved us. Amen. And let us stand together and sing and praise to God. Hymn number 550.